Louis, I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Rhodes? Well, we're going, we don't need Rhodes. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. No, I am your father. You're listening to After the Ending, the only film podcast where we tell you what happens after the ending of your favorite films. And now, here are your hosts, Mike Spring and Phil Edwards. Hello and welcome to After the Ending. I'm Mike Spring. And I'm Phil Edwards. And Phil, we got the ball in our hands and we're marching towards the goal line and it's uh, it's fourth and one. What do you say? Should we go for it? Yeah, we could do the old, you know, uh, Red 42 blitz, uh, <laughs> throw, go, go wide uh, and throw it, snap. There we go. There you go. In, in deference to your um, Britishness, I won't point out that you don't blitz when you have the ball, but that's okay. I mean, I, I like. I didn't your know it was the fence thing. My time playing John Madden's football on the uh, <laughs> the Master System. Oh right, I realized right. as I said it, yeah, but. Uh... It was always a good one to use, though. Yeah, yeah, for sure. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, as we mentioned last week, hopefully you listened in, but as we mentioned, uh, this is our our special football-themed episode to tie in with the Super Bowl, which is right around the corner. Uh, If you're listening to this right when it comes out, it could have also be the Super Bowl that just passed. But whenever you're listening, uh, we're tying it into the, the Super Bowl between the uh, New England Patriots and the Atlanta Falcons. So we thought this is a good time to have a sort of football-themed episode. And Phil, why don't you tell people what we'll be discussing in our in our show today that makes it uh, a football episode? Yes, we'll be going after the ending of Any Given Sunday and The Replacements, two American football-themed films. Both are very good. I got to see The Replacements over the weekend. I'd never seen it before, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. I'm so glad to hear that. It is a film that I uh, I have a deep affection for. It's uh, it's a lot of fun yeah. for sure. They, these are two very different films too, which I like, even though they're both you know football movies. You know, any given Sunday is an Oliver Stone film. It's very yeah. dramatic and and overwrought and loud. And then the replacements is is a, a comedy, very much along the lines of your Bad News Bears slash Major League. You know, yeah. Um, so it is it is kind of fun, and I think um, my endings went in kind of two different directions uh, because of that. So it, it, it it's, it'll be fun, and there there are two good movies but very different films as well yeah yeah as you say yeah both both really good movies and it's uh, it's nice to revisit them especially any given sunday i really enjoyed that the first time i saw that yeah you know it's been a while i think i have to maybe pop that in again before the the super bowl rolls around so well speaking i always forget it i always forget it's an oliver stone film as well yeah it is kind of outside of his wheelhouse a little bit you know it's not your typical oliver stone film until you watch yeah. it, and then it sort of is, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know. That's it. When you're watching it, you're going, yeah, Oliver Stone. Right. <laughs> when, you, when a few years pass by, you're going, oh, yeah, that's, that's one of his. Right. I forgot he made that football movie. Yeah, there's no conspiracy. <laughs> right, exactly. Or there? <laughs> right. Kind of, a little bit. <laughs> but as well as those two films, we'll also be looking at our top ten films of 1940. That's right. And we have a mini feature as well. Yes. It's, uh, Oscar nominations were announced today, but it'll be last week when you listen to this <laughs> right right but a- as of this recording it, they just released the nominations this morning so this is still very topical and i'm sure people will still be talking about it for for several weeks to come oh definitely it's uh it's going to be an interesting one i think oh for sure for sure yeah well why don't we jump into things then phil why don't you take us through the events of any given sunday yes any given sunday 1999 directed by oliver stone and it's got a hell of a cast albacino cameron diaz dennis quaid jamie fox james wood ll cool J. Anne-Margaret, Matthew Modine, and Charlton Heston as well, many more. 
It's all to do with the team, the Miami Sharks, a once great football team who are struggling to make the 2001 playoffs. Uh, coach Tony D'Amato, that's played by Pacino, has fallen out of favour with the team owner, Christina Pagniacci, played by Cameron Diaz. In the 13th game, quarterback uh, Dennis Quaid and the second string quarterback are injured. So they bring on the third stringer, uh, Willie Beeman, who's played by Jamie Foxx. He finally gets to play. Uh, he goes on and his success makes Beeman big-headed and causes conflict within the team. D'Amato ends up telling him that he's embarrassed of the team and the way they've been behaving, and so Beeman begins to change his bad behaviour. The playoffs arrive, and D'Amato gives a talk on team unity. Uh, Rooney, the Dennis Quaid character, is back as the quarterback, but he's injured once again after a touchdown, so D'Amato reluctantly lets Beeman play, and before he does so, Beeman apologises for the team, and they go on and win. At the following press conference, D'Amato was expected to announce his retirement. Instead, to the shock and horror of the uh, owner and other people, he says he's been hired by as head coach and team manager of a team down in New Mexico, and he has signed Beeman on to as starting quarterback. And that's any given Sunday. Very good. It's a, it's a hard-hitting, very uh, visceral sort of, very Oliver Stone-esque film. Nicely encapsulated, yeah. Phil. Yeah, because there's so much to it. But uh, that's just that's just the broad strokes. Yeah, no, I think you captured it captured it nicely. Okay, and um, what have you got, Stan, for your day after? All right, well, D'Amato and Beeman relocate to New Mexico to head up the new franchise, which I'm calling the New Mexico Suns because I can't remember if they had a name in the movie or not, so that's what I'm calling them. Yeah. They struggle in their first few years, but Beeman allows D'Amato to shape him and becomes a true team player. After several years and a trip to the Superb Bowl, because, you know, it's copywritten to say Super Bowl, so it's now it's yeah, the, yeah. the Superb Bowl, <laughs> they, which they lose to a team from New York, they eventually bring home the big trophy after several seasons. Beeman plays for 10 seasons and retires a wealthy man. After football, he finds himself restless, however. He's too big a personality to just sit at home and spend his money, but he doesn't know what to do with his life. Eventually, he decides to take a shot at acting, trying to follow in the footsteps of former sports figures like Dwayne The Rock Johnson, John Cena, Kobe Bryant, and Howie Long. His first few roles are just cameos, mostly playing himself for a single scene in the latest romantic comedy or Judd Apatow film. But then he gets his big break a chance to star in a biopic of Kanye West. <laughs> and that's where we're going to leave things for now. That's just the day after. <laughs> yes. Well, as you know, we, we play yeah, no. fast and loose with our <laughs> terminology, of, you know, where things fall in the timeline. But yeah, that's uh, that's that's the near day after, I guess. Okay, yeah, cool. No, no, that's, that's good. It's just, I was just going, did I miss something? Did I, did I fall asleep and miss something again? <laughs> but no, no, it was good. I like it. I like that uh, biopic of Kanye West. Somebody's got to do that eventually. Oh, that's it's be bound to happen, yep. Yeah. All right, how about, how about your day after then, Phil? Okay, so my day after. Uh, Pagniacci, she's so angry at D'Amato for taking the new job, uh, and in her mind, stealing Beeman from the team, from under her nose. So she talks to her lawyers, but finds out there's nothing she can actually do. D'Amato just spends the day watching old movies, listening to music, cooking, and just generally relaxing, because as you see in the film, he's very tense, shouts a lot. Well, he is Al Pacino, so it's lots of, what do you got? All that stuff. Right. Uh, Beeman takes the team out for a meal, and drinks to once again apologise for acting like an idiot. Rooney thanks him, and as the evening draws to a close, they share a glass of whiskey each and cigars, and Rooney wishes Beeman the best of luck for the future. And that's my day after. Uh, so that's what an actual day after is like, then. Yeah. <laughs> that's what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so what have you got for your immediate aftermath or 
after that, you know. Right, over the next six years. First few years, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah something like that. All right. Yeah. Well, Beeman finds himself in this big budget movie, uh, this Kanye West biopic directed by Oliver Stone. Ooh. Just West of Normal is a $100 million film with Beeman playing Kanye West, Christina Hendricks playing Kim Kardashian, and in a huge casting coup, Jamie Foxx playing West's mentor, Jay-Z. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Beeman's acting talent is unproven, but Stone wanted somebody with a naturally bombastic personality to capture the larger-than-life persona of Kanye West. The shoot runs long, and it takes almost a year to complete filming, but when it's finished, Beeman feels like a real actor. Stone puts the film together, and the finished product is a three-and-a-half-hour epic that goes on to gross over $200 million at the domestic box office. When Oscar nominations are announced, Just West of Normal is nominated for 11 awards, including Best Picture and Best Actor for Beeman. At the Oscars, when Beeman shocks the entertainment industry by winning the Best Actor prize, the first person he thanks is his former coach, Tony D'Amato. As he continues his speech, Kanye West himself jumps up on stage and says, I'm going to let you finish, but Kanye West gave the best Kanye West performance this year. He's quickly booed off stage, and Beeman finishes his speech. The event goes viral and lifts Beeman to even higher levels of celebrity overnight. Oh, I like that. Thank you. I could see all the happening. <laughs> <laughs> well, Phil, let's, uh, let's hear your, your immediate aftermath then. Okay. Uh, so D'Amato and Beeman have been doing good things in New Mexico. The team, the New Mexico Marauders, are doing well. And D'Amato has signed some new names and some veterans. It's, it's a good mix. Everybody seems to be getting on okay. But they haven't quite gelled. Beeman is the glue, though, which holds the team together. His ego is fully under control, and he is a caring, sharing leader of the team. One of their first games of the new season, season playing against the Miami Sharks. And while he didn't win the game, it finally sees the New Mexico Marauders come together as a team. Beeman also enjoyed going up against his old uh, football team. And Rooney congratulates Beeman on showing a maturity that he'd been lacking when he was with them. And that's my immediate aftermath. I like it. I like it very much. Thank you. All right. So you bring us home. What's going on with his acting career? All right. Well, riding high on the success of his Oscar win, Beeman begins a Hollywood career that sees him at the top of the entertainment world. He goes on to launch an action franchise called The Quarterback about a former football star who uses his unerring aim to become a vigilante and kill bad guys. The Quarterback 2, Double Overtime, becomes the second highest grossing <laughs> film of the year. He also stars in a hit buddy cop comedy with Melissa McCarthy, where he plays an alcoholic police officer called Lock and Loaded. And eventually he wins a second Oscar for another biopic, Crazy Like a Fox, where he portrays Oscar-winning actor Jamie Foxx. <laughs> <laughs> when he covers Jamie Foxx's cover of Ray Charles's Georgia On My Mind and gets Kanye West to produce it, he ends up winning a Grammy, too. With the entertainment world conquered, Willie eventually pens his memoir, a book called God of Entertainment, which, of course, becomes a bestseller. It isn't until he dies a few years later in an unfortunate groupie incident that <laughs> Willie learns that he actually was the god of entertainment, reincarnated on Earth. It turns out that wannabe actors, musicians, and athletes have been praying to him for centuries, and once a lifetime he goes down to Earth and gets to experience fame at its purest level, completely unaware of his true identity. Now that he's rejoined the pantheon of the gods in the heavens, he begins looking for a new body to inhabit. After a few days of searching, he finds the perfect specimen a young boy named Justin Timberlake, who's just about to join a singing group. The God of Entertainment starts to prepare for his next journey to Earth. <laughs> wow, that went... Took, I know, it took a little twist, right? Yeah, that went uh, fantastical. Oh, no, very good. <laughs> wow, brilliant. I like it. Yeah, wow. thanks. Yeah, a little, little 
unusual. I, but I honestly had no idea about that. About that. <laughs> I honestly had no idea when I was writing it where I was going with yeah. it for a while. And then it sort of came up with this idea and it gelled and I liked it. And I was like, yeah, I'm sticking with it. Cool. So, no, very good. All right. So let's hear how yours wraps up then. Give us your long term. Okay. The first season for the New Mexico Marauders goes well. They won more games than they lost and worked well together. It's been a good beginning. Something they can build on. However, during downtime, Beeman's in a bad car crash. Uh-oh. He's badly injured. Yeah, there's no bus driver this time. So <laughs> it's, uh, he, su- he survives. Oh, good. Uh, he's badly injured and he will live. It remains to be seen, though, whether he'll be able to play football again. Damato's worried, but he'd been, he's a good coach. He's been scouting anyway. He's always looking for new talent. And he brings in a new player to, the court- to be quarterback for the new season. Shane Falco. <laughs> a surprise pick. But the matter was impressed with what he did with the Washington Sentinels. The future looks good for the Marauders. Very nicely done. Thank you. Well, that for, that will make a lot more sense to people after they hear the – if they don't catch the reference, that will make sense to them very shortly is what I'll say. Yes, yes. <laughs> All right. Well, excellent. I like it. Uh, good. So there you go. So that is Any Given Sunday. Phil, do you have any given trivia for us? Yes, I do have some. Some for you. Very good. Thank you. Uh, Dennis Quay's house in the film was actually uh, Miami Dolphins' Dan Marino's house. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Clint Eastwood uh, was approached to play the Al Pacino, the, the motto, the coach role, but he also wanted to direct the film, so that didn't happen. Uh, in one scene, you see Ben Hare is playing on TV, and Charlton Heston's also in Any Given Sunday, as well as Ben Hare, obviously. Right. Uh, this, was, this was a deliberate thing, and Oliver Stone said it was to show that yesterday's rebels become the establishment uh, of today. Uh, the film has over 3,000 cuts. I believe that. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it's definitely one of those kind of ones. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ving Rhames and David Duchovny turned down roles in the film, but I'm not sure which roles they were. Oliver Stone plays a TV announcer, and Jim Caviziel played D'Amato's estranged son, but his scenes were cut, but you can see them on deleted scenes on the DVD and Blu-ray. Huh, cool. Mm. That's Any Given Sunday. Very nice. All right. Well, let's move on then to The Replacements, shall we? Yes, let's do it. All right. So, The Replacements, a 2000 film starring Keanu Reeves, Gene Hackman, Reese Ifans, Brooke Langton, Jon Favreau, Brett Cullen, and Jack Warden. And in The Replacements, the Professional Football League finds itself with its players on strike mid-season. Washington Sentinels owner Edward O'Neill, played by Jack Warden, calls his former coach Jimmy McGinty, played by Gene Hackman, and tells him that he and the rest of the owners have decided to finish the last four games of the season with replacement players. He hires McGinty to coach the team and tells him he needs to win three of the last four games to make the playoffs. McGinty agrees, but only if he can hire the players that he wants. He puts together his team, former All-American college player Shane Falco, so tying into your, your ending there, uh, played by Keanu Reeves, who had a horrendous championship game in college and then saw his career fall apart. He also recruits Nigel Gruff, played by Reese Ifans, as a kicker. Um, he's a Welsh soccer player. He also uh, recruits Walter Cochran, who is a devout Christian who blew out his knee in his one game in the pros. Uh, Danny Bateman, played by John Favreau, a SWAT team member who turns into a berserker on the field. And Brian Murphy, a gifted tight end who never got drafted because he was born deaf. Falco doesn't believe in himself, but McGinty does. Meanwhile, head cheerleader Annabelle hires a bunch of strippers to replace the striking cheerleaders, uh, which I just throw in because it's kind of funny and, you know, (laughs) it's a good scene. So, yeah, yeah. Um, the first game is a disaster with Falco panicking at the last minute. McGinty yells at him and tells him that winners want the ball when the game's on the line. After the game at a bar, superstar Sentinels quarterback Eddie Martell shows up and taunts the team, which causes a brawl to break out. The team gets arrested, but they also bond over their experience, which carries over onto the field. They win their next two games, and Shane and Annabelle become romantically entangled. 
For the final game, Martel and several of the opposing team's players have crossed the picket line, and McGinty is forced to bench Falco. With Martel leading the team, none of whom like him, they fall to 17-0. to zero. Falco, who's been watching from home, sees McGinty at halftime, say that the team needs heart, and he comes to the stadium. McGinty puts Falco into the game and reveals that the strike will be officially over the next day, meaning that the players have nothing to lose by giving it their all. Cochran scores a touchdown but blows out his knee again in the process, and the Sentinels rally and end up down by just three points in the final minute. The kicker, Gruff, reveals to Falco that he has to miss the kick on purpose or else his bookies in the crowd will make him pay. So Falco tells McGinty he wants the ball, and instead of going for the field goal to tie it, he throws a long bomb touchdown to win the game as the clock expires. Shane and Annabelle share a big kiss as the team celebrates and the crowd goes wild. And that is The Replacements. It's very good. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it's a, it's a hell of a cast in that film. Yeah, it really is. It's a lot. Of, it's a yeah. it's a it's a terrific cast. Uh, Brett Cullen is actually one of my favorite character actors. He's not like super famous, but he's one of those guys that you see him and you recognize him. And um, yeah. just everyone yeah. in it is really terrific. And you can tell that they were having a lot of fun making this movie. I think that really carries over. Yeah, they just do come together as a team. There's some really funny moments as well. Absolutely. So, all right. Well, tell us then, Phil, what happens in your day after. Okay, Shane, Nigel and the rest of the team celebrate their win and their time together. They do realise that they may never see each other again or will never be quite how it was with the Sentinels. Uh, They all end up back at Annabelle's bar and they all end up leaving in dribs and drabs. L. Wilkinson has to leave first as he has to return to prison. But Danny says he'll be there for him at his next parole hearing and give him him support and see if he can help things. Uh, Nigel realises that his life, or at least his limbs, are in grave peril. And after saying goodbye to Shane, he heads off to the airport and heads home to Wales. And that's my day after. Excellent. All right. A lot of nice wrap-ups there for some of the characters. Yeah. Well, that's, that's, that's it. They're all going to go. Not all of them would be part of the thing going onwards, but who knows who will turn up in the future. That's right. So what have you got for your day after? All right. Well, the Sentinels are in the playoffs. Team owner O'Neill wants all the regular players back, but McGinty convinces him to keep Falco on the lineup just in case. The rest of the team gives Falco a lot of respect for what he did while he was playing. Even though they worked with Martel, the fact that he crossed the picket line before the strike was over pisses a lot of the players off. Over the next week, the locker room splits into two halves, a Martel camp and a Falco camp. The day before the big playoff game, one of Martel's flunkies puts a massive tackle on Falco during practice, jarring him pretty good. Falco's players react, and the team starts to get into a big fight, but McGinty breaks them up, and then he decides he's going to settle it once and for all. He announces that they're going to have a shootout during practice, with the winner getting the starting role in the playoff game. They set up a series of targets, and both quarterbacks start throwing. They're equally matched, but in the end, Falco pulls out the win and gets the starting job. Yay! Yay! And look, that was like a real day after. It wasn't like, you know, six years of time. (laughs) (laughs) No, very good. All right, good. Well, how about your immediate aftermath? Okay. Most of the replacements end up returning to their previous lives, but they all have a new sense of purpose and confidence. Some, such as Clifford and Brian, get recruited to other teams. None of the big teams, but they're happy to be playing, and they do well. Shane Falco gets offered the quarterback position at the New Mexico Marauders, after its quarterback is involved in a car crash. It's a big move, but he talks it over with Annabelle, and they decide to go for it. Heather and Dawn, a couple of the strippers, take over the running of the bar. They want to change the scene. They want to do something a bit more legit. And they also get help from the Jackson brothers, publicising it and things like that. So that's my immediate aftermath. I like it. Uh, Let's say what happens with your immediate aftermath. All right. 
As the clock winds down, the Sentinels finish mopping up their opponent 43-20. to While Falco was worried that Martell's guys wouldn't play for him during the game, everybody wants to win in the playoffs and they all give it their best. They go on to win the next two games with Shane at the helm and win a trip to the Superb Bowl once again. Uh, <laughs> and uh, in the two weeks between the championship game and the Super Bowl, Shane and Annabelle continue to spend as much time as they can together when Shane's not in practice or watching game film. Eventually, the big game arrives, and Shane leads the team to a narrow victory over the New Mexico Suns, or, or the Marauders, if you will, and their hot quarterback, Steeman Willie Beeman. The world rejoices, and Shane instantly becomes an overnight superstar, winning the biggest game in the world as a replacement player. Shortly after the hubbub dies down, Shane proposes to Annabelle, and they get married in the offseason. Since Shane wasn't a contracted player, every other team in the league comes calling, offering him a big contract to play quarterback for them. And that's where we'll leave it. Oh, very nice. Thank you. All right. So let's uh, let's see how things wind up in your ending then. Go ahead and share your long term. Okay. Shane and Annabelle have a great life in New Mexico. Um, with, and with Falco as the quarterback, the New Mexico Marauders go from strength to strength. Three years later, they end up winning the Super Bowl. Coach D'Amato has never been happier. He retires due to ill health, but he's accomplished everything he wanted. And he makes the announcement of his retirement at uh, Shane and Annabelle's wedding. And he ends his speech with uh, pain heals, chick stick scars, and glory lasts forever. <laughs> nice. Shane Falco's had a big uh, input on the team and everybody involved. The new coach used to be the old quarterback. Uh, it's, it's Beeman. He ended up losing his leg, though, in the car crash. Ooh. I don't know. But he promises D'Amato he will continue uh, onwards. And he talks with Falco, and they bring some of the other former replacements onto the team, including a skinny Welshman who finally quit smoking. <laughs> and that's, uh, that's my after the end. I like it. Just got to get the English guy back on the team there, huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm down with that. I like yeah. it. Yeah. Thank you. Excellent. Okay, what about uh, your long term? All right, well, it's not, too, it's not too different from yours, actually. I think we went in similar directions here. But yeah. Shane wants to stay with the Sentinels due to his loyalty to McGinty, but McGinty tells him that O'Neill isn't bringing him back next season. So Shane goes on the hunt for a team that will sign him, but also that needs a new coach. He ends up in New York, a team that signs both him and McGinty to multi-million dollar contracts. You'll remember, I'm just going to throw this back, that in my, in my after the ending for any given Sunday, they lose to New York in the Super Bowl. <gasps> Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. So. Oh. so they sign their contracts, and McGinty brings back both Danny Bateman and Brian Murphy and convinces the team owners to sign them both to contracts. Over the next seven seasons, Falco and McGinty lead the team to four more playoff runs, and finally, in Falco's final season, another Superb Bowl championship. Falco retires a rich man, and he and Annabelle settle down and start a family. Falco wants to continue to work in football, but doesn't want to coach, so he and Annabelle start a foundation to give underprivileged kids training and summer camps where they can live for the whole summer and learn football skills and fundamentals. A disproportionately large number of young men who go to Falco's camp go on to graduate college and become professional football players, and every single one of them, when they get drafted or win an award, always thanks Shane Falco and praise the profound impact he had on their lives. And that's the end. Oh, brilliant. Yeah. Thanks. I like that. Yeah, yeah. A little less uh, goofy than my uh, other ending. But I, I like the idea of Shane going on and doing something. You know, I don't, I don't see him being like, you know, president or changing the world necessarily. But I like the idea of him sort of, you know, giving back. and, and... Yeah, you could see him doing that because he was all about he had that. Well, it's not so much mystical, but, you know, it's that, it's that love of the game kind of thing when yeah. he's on the field. Yeah. Right, right, exactly. You know, so so I kind of like the idea of, of just, you know, him and Annabelle, like, like in your ending also, having this nice life together and yeah. and just sort of paying it forward and doing something that sort of helps, you know. Excellent, yeah. Keep the sport and the sportsmanship alive, so. Very good. 
All right. Very cool. Well, there you go. Those are our endings for the replacements. Phil, how about some trivia about this fun little film? Yeah, when uh, during filming, Keanu Reeves was actually offered a tryout with the Baltimore Ravens because uh, they were filming. Lots of the filming was in and around Baltimore, right. including the Baltimore Ravens Stadium. So that's quite cool. Oh, I didn't know that. That's interesting. Falco was a former quarterback from Ohio State, and Johnny Utah was also a quarterback from Ohio State. That's right. A little point break. Uh, little point break Sweet. reference there. So I wish I didn't. I didn't even think of that, but we could have had. Oh, after the ending, could have had Falco becoming Johnny Utah. That's right. His name. That's right. That. Right. But uh, then we would know what happened because it would just be the yeah, end of point break. It would yeah, have to I mean, be like, and then to... in the immediate aftermath, he chases a bank <laughs> robber named Bodie, but he gets away and he shoots yeah. his gun up into the sky and yells, no, no, wouldn't be very creative. <laughs> That's true. Uh, Keanu gained 23 pounds for the role. Wow. Muscle, I assume. Yeah. Yeah. It was Jack Warden's last film. Right. And the football scenes were filmed on a weekend and a company of army trainees from Aberdeen Proving Ground uh, were part of the crowd. Yeah, that's cool. And that's, uh, that's the replacements. Well, there you go. So two good football films. If you're going to pick just one to watch, my vote goes to The Replacements. But it really depends on what kind of movie you want to watch, like a really down and dirty, gritty football drama or a fun kind of goofy comedy. Yeah, well, there's, uh, and there's lots of other American football movies out there, but uh, they're all worth watching. Oh, yeah. Well, we decided to save those for next year's Super Bowl. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> we'll get That's to that. That's true. Yeah, yeah. Don't watch any of the others apart from the ones we mentioned. That's right. <laughs> yes, there's a strict lockdown. You're not allowed yeah. to watch any other football movies except for these two. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, good. So there we go. So let's move on then to our mighty morphing mini feature. Phil, tell people what we're talking about. Well, this one's Oscar the Grouch. There you go. Well, it's all. It's all about the Oscars. Uh, they were announced. The nominations were announced this morning. Well, the time today, the time of recording. Uh, and there was some many films that were expected to be in it. There was a few snubs and a few surprises, but we're going to have a quick chat about that and see what we thought about it. Yeah, just share some opinions on what we think about the nominations. You know, a little bit of uh, Oscar talk, if you will. So, Phil, what was your what was your first impression? Anything uh, stand out for you? Uh, well, the fact La La Land got fourteen nominations, well deserved, so, I might add. Yeah. It matches up with all about even Titanic, right? Right. Same amount of nominations. Uh, it's not surprising. I mean, it's you could, maybe the one thing you could maybe say was uh, Ryan Gosling best actor. I was, I don't know. Yeah, a bit surprised about that compared to what the other films that are out there. Yeah, I think that's definitely one of the ones where I, I, you know, I mean, I'm happy he got nominated. I did enjoy his performance in the film, but it did seem to me to be a little bit more of kind of Ryan Gosling sort of doing what Ryan Gosling does well. Yeah, yeah. You know, that sort of cool, charming guy. I didn't think it was necessarily um, an Oscar-winning performance. And maybe it won't yeah. be, but, you know, I, I, I can't really argue with you on that one. Mm-hmm. And what about, uh, what else? What's well, I have to you? say, uh, while we're on the subject of La La Land, I mean, obviously I love the film. I'm a big fan of, of Damien Chazelle, the director. I'm glad he got nominated. Um, but I will say that if Emma Stone does not win for Best Actress, it will be a crime against the arts. Because <laughs> here's the thing. I mean, it's easy to it's easy to dismiss her role in that movie, I think, because it's this, you know, kind of light, you know, fun movie. And it's got the song and dance and stuff. But when you watch that movie, the, the emotions that she can convey – with just her face yeah, and the number of emotions she can go through in like a 10 second span that are all just visible on her face is one of the most amazing performances I've ever seen. Like yes. she goes from, from being happy to like crying in like five seconds and it's the, and it's so believable and so natural. And like, I just, I remember watching that film on the big screen and, and just think every time they'd show her and, and she'd go through this like emotional change. I was just floored by how, 
how good she is at it. So, so in my she's mind, amazing. yes, in, in my mind, if she doesn't win, that that will be the biggest upset in in you know to me. Well, the thing is, well, she's up against Isabel Hooper for Elle, Ruth Negger for Loving. Natalie Portman for Jackie and Meryl Streep for Florence Foster Jenkins. And the Meryl Streep one was a big surprise for me. I didn't think she she deserved to be in. Yeah, it's sort of the, the, you know, that, that falls into the, the annual Meryl Streep because she's yeah. Meryl Streep Award, which is the same thing I feel about Jeff Bridges getting nominated for Come Hell or Hell or yeah. High Water. It's that True. annual because he's Jeff Bridges Award. But I'm surprised Amy Adams wasn't nominated for Best Actress for Arrival. Yeah, I think that's the one that most people are sort mm. of seeing as. You know, yeah, especially because we got a got a best picture pick as well for right. Arrival, and she, and she basically it's it's her. She's she carries the whole film. It's all following her. So right, right, yeah. So I, I I was surprised by that as well, especially like you said with Meryl Streep getting nominated. It did seem like maybe we could have given Meryl Streep a break this yeah. year. You know, yeah, she's had a few. Right, and what else was there? Oh, Passengers that got more nominations than Scorsese's Silence. Yeah, that's interesting, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah, hmm. I was I was made made up to see though the Lobster. Got a nomination for Best Original Screenplay. Right, right. I noticed that. That was, nice that was interesting. Yeah. What else? What else stood out for you? Well, I think you know I've seen a lot of people you know crying foul that Deadpool didn't get nominated for Best Picture, and um, you know I, I I just had to respond to those people and say it was never going to get nominated for Best Picture. Yeah, yeah. Um, I love Deadpool. I think it was number four or five in my top ten films of the year. But a, it's not the kind of movie that the Academy nominates, and you know everyone says, well, it got a Golden Globe nomination. Well, but they have a category for comedies, and so that makes it easier to nominate. The film, you know, yeah. Um, but but the Academy was not going to give Deadpool a Best Picture nomination, and frankly, I don't think it deserves a Best Picture nomination. No, I I agree with you. Yeah, right. I mean, I love the film; it's a lot of fun. Do I think it's the best movie of the year? No, and I don't think it's really meant to be. You know, I mean, I'm glad they they got all this extra attention. You know, I'm glad people have reacted to the film so well. But realistically, it was never going to get a nomination for Best Picture, and I don't I don't think it really deserved to get one either. Yeah. Yeah. Not to take anything away from it. Like I said, I love the movie, but just it's just not what I think of when I think of a best picture. No, it's, I t- totally agree with you. Yeah. Um, one, one other thing as well, uh, uh, congratulations to Barry Jenkins. He's the first black writer-director to get nominated for not only best picture, best, but also best director and best screenplay for uh, Moonlight. Right. So that's a, that's a big thing for that. Absolutely. Yeah, and I haven't seen that yet, but I want to. I've heard very good things about it. I will say that... Um, I was really excited to see Mahershala Ali get nominated for Best Actor. I've actually been a fan of his for a really long time. Best Supporting Actor. Uh, Best Supporting Actor, excuse me, yes. He was on a TV show called The 4400. Yeah, that's why I first saw him. He was so cool in that. Yeah, he's great in that show. And I've I've seen him pop up in so many things over the years. And every time he shows up, you know, the nice thing is when you see his name in the credits, it's easy to go, oh, I I remember. I I like him. He was in Marvel's Luke Cage on Netflix as well, and he was brilliant in that. Right, you know, and, and I've seen him in many, many things over the years. And he's just one of those actors. I've always paid attention to and always kept my eye out for. And whenever I see his name in the credits, I always, you know, go, oh, sweet. You know, I really like him. So um, the fact that I could see him winning. Oh, yeah. To be honest. Absolutely. I think that's a a tight race. So I I was very excited for him to get some, you know, some national attention because he's sort of been a a supporting player for all these years. So it's it's nice to see him. Maybe this will lead to him getting some more roles because he really is just a terrific, terrific actor. Oh, it really is. So that's, I reckon he'll win Best Supporting Actor. Do you want, should we just, like, the big top awards, should we say who we think will win? Absolutely. So Best Supporting Actor, I think, Marshall Ali. What about you? You know, I'm going to go with him also. I think I think he's a good, I think he's got a good chance of winning it. Okay. Best Supporting Actress? Ooh, tough call between Octavia Spencer and Hidden Figures and Michelle Williams in Manchester by the Sea. Um, both of whom have already won, too. So, yeah. um... 
I'm going to then split and say Naomi Harris for Moonlight. I'll just pair them up for the Moonlight. Okay. <laughs> I'm, I, I've got a feeling it's going to be Viola Davis for Fences. Oh, okay. All right. Good. Yeah, I'm just going to go for that. Okay. Okay. And best actor. This is a tough category. You know, I um, like we said, I, I think Ryan Gosling, you know, it isn't necessarily the Oscar-winning performance, but you know what? I'm actually going to pick him because I think this might just be La La Land's year, and I think yeah, maybe people yeah. are just going to kind of vote, like get swept up in the love for La La Land. So I'm going to say I think Gosling gets it. Yeah, that's the one. Personally, I'd like I'd like Viggo Mortensen to get it for Captain Fantastic. Right? Yeah, yeah. Mainly because I just I've always liked him, but uh, I think it's going to be Casey Affleck. Uh, yeah, that's uh, also Manchester I by think. the Sea. He's yeah. gotten a lot of buzz for sure. I was surprised Andrew Garfield got the nomination for Hacksaw Ridge and not Silence. I was surprised that Hacksaw Ridge got all the nominations it's got, frankly, yeah. because I just didn't see it being on the radar for the awards yeah. buzz. It didn't really get a lot of talk about awards. And then it gets Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor. I was like, whoa, where did that come from? Yeah, it's sort of like uh, Hollywood's, you know, accepted Mel Gibson back in the fold, haven't they? Right. Well, his, I mean... Uh, his nomination. Well, there is the factor that it's been a long time since his incident, but I think also, you know, if you're doing your job well, you have to separate the artist from the art. Mm -hmm. And so whether you hate Mel Gibson or you love him, if you think his film deserved to be rewarded, then it should be rewarded regardless of what his personal life is like. That's how yeah. I feel. Yeah, because there's lots of people involved in the film as well. So Right, exactly. But we have, And what about then... We go with uh, best. We've done best actor. I mean, best actress. Uh, well, I got to go Emma Stone. I mean, I think she deserves it. She's my number one choice, hands down, and I, I, I think she's going to win it. Yeah, I think she's going to win it as well. Although Isabel Hooper, uh, she, she won the Golden Globe, didn't she? She did, yes. But also, well, and not to say anybody's playing favorites, but international actress winning the award that's given out by the Hollywood Foreign Press Association. Yeah, true, yeah, yeah. There may be yeah. just a little bit of bias there is all I'm saying, but where I think with the Academy, uh, that may not come into play. Not to take away from Isabel Huppert, let me make that perfectly clear. Yeah, I know, I totally understand, yeah, you yeah. Know, fantastic actress, great performance, I'm sure, but I, I think maybe that might be why she, she stole it, but I do think Emma Stone will hopefully take it for La La Land. Yeah, I, I th I've got a feeling she will as well. We'll just do two more then. Uh, best director, who do you think is going to get that? You know, I'm going to go, I'm, I'm going to kind of lean towards La La Land here. I'm going to pick Damien Chazelle. Yeah, I think that's, that'd probably be it. But I've got a feeling Barry Jenkins, though, might get it for Moonlight. Kind of, it could be a spoiler there. Yeah, yeah, he might say. Uh, yeah. I, listen, I'd be, I'd be down with that. That would be a, a great win for sure. So, okay, so, and finally, what do you think? This could be a tough one, but I think I know what you're going to pick. <laughs> uh, but uh, what's best picture going to be? Well, I, I have to go with La La Land. I mean, obviously, I love the film. I have not seen all of the movies in the list, but I, I do feel like it's got the critical buzz. It's got the momentum. You know, I just, I feel like this is... You know, one of those years where La La Land is going to be one of those movies that cleans up and takes home seven or eight Oscars yeah, or however many. Yeah. You know, it's going to oh, I think it's going to get at least half of its nomination. Yeah, yeah, yeah I think so too. Yeah, And you? Uh, I think, uh, well, I was made up to see Hello High Water and Arrival in the Best Picture. Right. Nice to see a sci-fi film. Sure, sure. In the Best Picture. But I think, I think it's probably going to be La La Land, but I think Manchester by the Sea might be a... Uh, could be a spoiler. Spoil it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, but I think it's going to be La La Land. I, I agree. One more thing I just want to throw in there. I am totally psyched that Kubo and the Two Strings got nominated for oh, yeah, uh, yeah. Best Animated Picture. As as you may recall, it was on my top 10 of 2016. I think it was in at number six or seven. Um, just a yeah. fantastic movie. It will probably lose to Moana, um, which is also terrific, and, and so that would be okay. But I, I I was very excited to see that Kubo got nominated uh, as is well-deserved. Yeah, I, I, I made up Kubo's in there. Yeah, for sure. And my, my, my life is a zucchini. What, what the, what's that? I have no idea. You got yeah. me on that one. 
But anyway, yeah, I, pass, I hope Kubo and the Two Strings wins for that. Yeah, that would be nice. Mm. All right. So there you go. So that is our Oscar talk or Oscar the Grouch, as we have lovingly uh, yeah. dubbed it for this week. Um, and uh, if you have thoughts on your Oscar picks or, or predictions, feel free to share those with us via our social media channels. We look forward to watching the Oscar ceremony on February the 26th, and we'll see who wins. Yeah, it should, should be a fun night. Yeah, it always is. All right. So moving on then, it's time to get into our 100 years of Hollywood in 100 episodes, wherein we pick a year and share our top 10 films from that year. Uh, this year, Phil, we're doing 1940. So tell us a little bit about what the world was like back in 1940. 1940 we had the prime minister oh and it's it's was, our 40th episode and it's 1940 that is uh i would oh. say a lucky coincidence but it's not a coincidence because i planned it that way ah, <laughs> well well done for planning it that thank one, you thank yeah, you for, episode 40 of course that's yeah. right wow another milestone yeah spoiler alert guess what year we're going to do for our 50th episode oh, i don't know <laughs> 2011 yeah you're don't right know. you got it Man, i didn't think you guessed that one okay uh, yeah so in uh, 1940 Prime Minister was Neville Chamberlain, uh, followed by Winston Churchill, and the President of America was Franklin D. Roosevelt, and World War II was happening, so there was lots of battles, fights, political intrigue, various things like that, but I won't go into that. We also had Tom and Jerry debuting in a show called Puss Gets the Boot, Elmer Fudd debuted in Elmer's Candid Camera, uh, Robin the Boy Wonder debuted in Detective Comics number 38, and there was a couple more debuts, Daisy Duck, she appeared for the first time in Mr. Duck Steps Out, and Bugs Bunny... Uh, made his appear first appearance in A Wild Hair. Hattie McDaniel, she was the first African-American to win an Oscar for her she was Best Supporting Actress for Mammy, Gone with the Wind. The first McDonald's opened in San Bernardino, California. Uh, women's stockings made of nylon went on sale in the US, and on that first day, almost 5 million pairs were bought. Wow, that's crazy. So that was a bit of a hit, yeah. yeah. Uh, there, will, there were a few deaths, but I'm not going to do deaths because, you know, I don't want to this time. But I'm going to go with the births because of some good births this year. John Hurt. James Cromwell, George A. Romero, H.R. Geiger, Peter Fonda, Chuck Norris, uh, Raul Julia, Hangus Nagore, James Kahn, Peter Benchley, Tom Jones, Patrick Stewart, James Brolin, Martin Sheen, John Lennon, Dario Argento, Richard Pryor, uh, Tom Baker, Bruce Lee, Raquel Welsh, and Frank Zappa. Some pretty, uh, some pretty big names there for sure. Yeah, lots, lots of legends involved in that one. Absolutely. So it's 1940. All right. Well, I don't know about you, Phil, but it turns out I had not seen a full 10 films from 1940. I thought I had, but I came up just a couple short. So my first three picks are going to be movies that I want to see, and then I'll jump into my movies I actually have seen from there. How's that sound? That sounds good to me, but I, I had seen I'd seen more films than I thought I had, so I've got 10. All right, good. Hey, listen, so I'm, I'm glad 10, you, yeah. you, you tend to show me up a little bit when it comes to these, these older years. So must be that a uh, couple of years you have on me there. <laughs> Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Well, I'll get you there, young fella. <laughs> I don't know why my old man voice is American. I, <laughs> I don't know, but I like it. <laughs> All right, Phil, why don't you start us off then and give ahead and give us your number 10. Okay, my number 10 is, surprisingly for me, it's a Disney film. Wow, really? And this it, might be your first, I think. I think it, I think it is, actually. That's I, crazy. I, I might have had one before, but I can't remember. Right. But it is Fantasia. Excellent. Because it's just, well, it's, some bits of Fantasia you don't like. Right. That's why it's not high up my list. But I think everybody's like that with Fantasia. There's bits you love, there's bits you're not sure of, and there's bits you just, you're just going, oh, quick skip, skip, skip. Yeah. But uh, it's, it was a hell of an experiment by Walt Disney. I mean, taking all these classical pieces of classical music and then making animated segments for it. 
And on the whole, the majority of them work. Even the ones you don't really like, they still work in, with the music. Right. There's, you get the Sorcerer's Apprentice, obviously, with Mickey Mouse, which is always fun. But uh, my favorite's Night on Bald Mountain. Mm -hmm. It's the last part where you see the uh, the devil waking up and wake, wake, waking up the evil spirits and and the restless souls as they do their dance. Right. But uh, lots of good bits. And then they keep going back to it every few years, don't they, and re adding new segments or taking bits or re-updating it. But I think it's uh, – I just think it was a good – it was a good experiment in the world of cinema. Sure, absolutely. Good choice. Thank you. And what about your number 10? All right, well, my number 10 is a is a movie called Dispatch from Reuters, and it stars Edward G. Robinson. He plays the man who started the Reuters News Service. Uh, it's sort of a biopic. And, you know, I'm a big Edward G. Robinson fan. Uh, I will always watch any movie he's in. And as somebody who has, you know, worked in journalism and has always loved journalism movies, um, I think the idea of this sort of biopic of, you know, this 1940s, 1930s era, uh, journalism world is uh, sounds pretty fascinating to me. So, uh, Dispatch from Reuters, I have not seen it yet, but I own it actually, and uh, I tried to watch oh, it before nice. we did this list, but I couldn't squeeze it in. So, uh, <laughs> hopefully, I will watch it soon and I can report back as to how. Oh yeah, how definitely. Let me know because I I saw that when I haven't seen that film, but I saw that on the list, and uh, I really like the sound of that one myself. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, so I look forward to hearing what you think of that one. Excellent. Okay, my number nine is a film called Contraband. Although I think over in in the United States, it was called Blackout, but it's a wartime spy film by the brilliant director-writer team of Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger, and it stars Conrad Veidt and Valerie Hobson. Yeah, it follows the captain, Conrad Veidt, and his freighter to stop in the English Channel by to have the cargo inspected. It's a good war kind of film, but it's it's not the usual side of war things you're seeing. It's this guy, you know, as I say, it's captain. It's a, he's the merchant ship, and he gets uh, he meets up with a beautiful woman. They the lose the passes that you know to, so they can get around, and it's a bit of intrigue going on. There's like spies and things like that. You're not sure who's who's doing what, who's the good guy, who's the bad guy, but it's uh, it's Powell and Pressburg, so it looks gorgeous. And uh, Conrad Veidt was a great actor, and it's uh, it's worth checking out. Some good uh, good scenes, good moments, and it's my number nine. Very good. I have not seen that one, but I look forward to watching it. Okay. All right. Well, my number nine then um, will will probably come as a surprise to some people, and that's because I haven't actually seen it, or maybe I have, and this is a weird one for me. So my number nine is The Mark of Zorro, and it stars Tyrone Power, and I'm a huge Zorro fan, which I've said on the show before. And the weird thing for me is I could swear I've seen this movie before, but I can't really remember for sure if I have or I haven't. And I, I watched the trailer for it again, and it looked kind of familiar, but it didn't really ring any of those bells, make me go, oh, I've definitely seen this one. So I didn't want to cheat and put it on my list as a film I had seen because I really can't remember watching it. My suspicion is I watched it as a kid, but probably haven't seen it since then. So so it makes it onto my, my portion of the list of movies I want to see, but maybe I've seen it. But I love Zorro, and this is one of the great you know Zorro adaptations, one of the most popular ones. So um, even if I have seen it, I definitely need to go back and revisit it. It is a good film, I would have. But yeah, if, you, if you're not sure... Then. Yep, that's why I try, yeah. try and keep it legit. Just, yeah, keep <laughs> legit. Okay, my uh, my number eight is uh, The Ghost Breakers, starring Bob Hope and Paulette Goddard. Bob Hope is always good fun. He plays a crime reporter. He's got lots of enemies, and they, they try and uh, get him. Uh, and they get uh, lots of bit of a farce. It's funny. Uh, it's a bit creepy in places as well. He meets some bizarre people in this uh, weird hotel, and it's a good film. And I always like seeing Bob Hope. Sure, absolutely. And yeah. and just so eagle-eared listeners don't get confused, I mentioned Ghostbreakers on my 1933 list a few weeks back as a film I wanted to see because yeah. it has been made several times. And so mine was the earlier iteration. And yours, of course, is the 1940 Bob Hope version. That's right. And I hadn't realized that I'd seen it until I was reading about it, and then I suddenly went, "Ah, oh, I know the one." <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. All right, well, my number eight is the last of the films I haven't seen, and it is one of my big omissions.
seasons, um, and I actually tried to watch it before we recorded, but the DVD wouldn't work. So that was a lot of fun. It is <laughs> Rebecca by Alfred Hitchcock. It's the only Alfred Hitchcock film to win Best Picture, um, and I won't say much more about it because I haven't seen it, and I have a sneaking suspicion maybe it could be on your list. Who knows? Um, but yeah. Uh, definitely one of those movies that I need to see as I am a big Hitchcock fan. Yes, you definitely need to see that film. Right. Uh, okay, my number seven is The Seahawk, which stars Errol Flynn, Brenda Marshall, and Claude Rains. Uh, Errol Flynn is an English privateer, and he's protecting the nation uh, on the eve of an attack from the Spanish Armada. It's got a great cast. Uh, it's Errol Flynn doing all his daring doing swashbuckling on, on a big ship, but it's, uh, it's well worth, if you like, action adventure and Errol Flynn. It's uh, worth checking out. Yeah, that's another one that I'm like 95% sure I've seen. But I just, you know, again, I think it was when I was a kid. I can't, I couldn't remember it enough to actually make it onto my list. So, um, but, a, but a good choice. And I, I do think I've run across that one. Yeah, you probably have. It used to, I mean, it used to be on TV when I was a kid all the time as well. So it's, exactly. it's uh, yeah, it's, it's always knocking about. All right, well, my number seven, now we're getting to the movies I've actually seen, uh, has appeared on your list, and it is Fantasia. Um, obviously, it's, uh, like you said, it's great Disney, you know, music and animation mix. Some of the parts work, some of them don't. But I do love The Sorcerer's Apprentice, and there are some really fun segments in there. And uh, as we know, I'm a big uh, Disney sap, so so it made it onto my list. I had a feeling it would. Yeah, not a big surprise there. <laughs> yeah, <for you. laughs> Okay, my number six is Charlie Chaplin film, uh, Great Dictator, his political satire, uh, which is, he was never my favorite uh, silent movie star, but The Great Dictator is a great film, it's a great piece of movie, uh, but it's a bit, it's all about case, mistaken identity, lost memory, it's like Prince and the Pauper story, but you know, he ends up becoming, swapping places with like an evil dictator, but then he does this amazing speech at the end, where he talks about, you know, the terrible things that the likes of Hitler and Mussolini had done. It's an important film as well. And Charlie Chaplin, I mean, you can join for the human stuff. You wouldn't, you wouldn't have expected him, to be honest, to do an important film. But it's, this is one of them. Yeah, for sure. Good choice. All right. Well, my number six, then, is A Philadelphia Story, starring Cary Grant and Katherine Hepburn. It's not their greatest film, in, in my opinion. I, I mean, I, I enjoy it. I do like it. I don't I don't think it's – I know it's kind of considered one of their you – know, one of their more popular ones, kind of a classic. And I, I do like it. I think maybe sometimes it's a little um, overestimated in how much people people like it or – Yeah, yeah. You know, but, uh, but I do enjoy it. I enjoy seeing the two of them together when they're so young. And um, so it made it on my list. Well, it's uh, – it's, I, I quite like it, but it's my number five. Ah, very good. Mainly because – it's it's Cary Grant, Catherine Hepburn, James Stewart, and just seeing them on screen right. is, is lovely. I think that's I think it's probably why it's it's as high on my list as it is because it's it's the three of them. And as you say, the story isn't it's nothing new really, but it's just when they're on screen together, it's just it's just magical. All right, very good. Well, my number five then uh, we're pretty close here uh, is the Great Dictator which you just talked about. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, I, I am a big Charlie Chaplin fan and uh, it's it was I agree with you it's an important film. It's not one of my favorites of his. I I think I do prefer some of his earlier stuff that's, you know, a little funnier, um, you know, uh Yeah, it's it's cuz it's quite hard going in places as well. Right. Because what the subject matter but so it's understandable. But I do I do enjoy it very much, you know, for the most part. Uh, there are some great moments in it, some really funny stuff and and so it uh, it makes it on my list. Excellent. Uh, my number four, you've already mentioned it, but you haven't seen it. It's Rebecca. Ah, uh, yes. I, I had a feeling. Yeah, it's uh, it's a great film. Good, good mystery. It's a great story anyway. It's always been a good story. Uh, Lawrence Olivia and Joan Fontaine do wonderful things. It's got this dark, pervading, you know, sense of mystery and foreboding. You're not quite sure what's going on. Even, even though if you know the story, you're still just waiting for what's going to happen. You've got uh, Mrs. Danvers, played by Judith Anderson, the housekeeper, who's just, whoa, she's just one, you know, 
a great uh no, who uh, who the the hit heroine she has to go up against, or well, not so much go up against, but just has this battle of wills constantly. Right. But it's Alfred Hitchcock, so you just have this beautiful dark gothic manor house as well, and it's just uh, it's just brilliantly done. Good good sound in it as well, which is always nice. Mm-hmm. But it's uh, well worth checking out. Very good. Well, my number four is a tie between two movies that are not on your list, but you have mentioned them. Mm-hmm. Ooh. And they are Puss Gets the Boot and A Wild Hair. Ah, I, I know they're short cool. films. They're short animated cartoons. So I understand that that's a little bit of cheating. But they, they were, you know, they played theatrically. Um, and, you know, Puss Gets the Boot, of course, is the debut of Tom and Jerry. A Wild Hair gets the, was the debut of Bugs Bunny. Um, both very important pieces of my childhood, especially Tom and Jerry, actually. I mean, I always loved the Looney Tunes, but I was a diehard Tom and Jerry fan when I was a kid. Like, nothing got me as excited when I turned on the TV as seeing Tom and Jerry cartoons um so you know both of these are are great are great you know short cartoons i've seen them both i I love them both um and to me they're just so culturally significant because you know these characters have lived on for you know 75 years um that i I had to squeeze them in there so i I made them a tie so i could you know get them both in at the same time i don't want to take up two whole spaces for each of them but i do find them uh, to be very enjoyable and and worthy of inclusion on my list i quite quite agree that they are as you say the the legends and they're, they're still going strong. I mean, people, kids, kids nowadays know them as well. It's just, uh, it's a, it's amazing to think that you know, some a couple of animated, well, three animated characters are just would have such an impact. Right. Exactly. Good, good stuff. Now, uh, okay. So my number three is you mentioned it. It's the Mark of Zorro. Very good. Yeah, it's starring Tyrone Power, Linda Darnell, and Basil Rathbone. Classic Zorro story. We all know Zorro, but uh, it's got that amazing uh, fight scene between Tyrone Power and Basil Rathbone. It's got great light lighting as well. All the, all the great stunts as well, because you know they're doing it for real back then. You know, people could get hurt. Right. They're using real swords as well and things like that. So it's uh, it's great fun. And it's also, you know, if it wasn't for the Marcus Ari, we wouldn't have Batman, things like that. <laughs> That's but, right. <laughs> uh, but, uh, yeah, it's you've, you've got to you – pro- you probably have seen it, but I think, you're well I worth think so, but make, make sure, you know, get it again and watch it again. I definitely will. Because it still stands up. It's a, it's a great great action movie. It still it still stands up today. I'm looking forward to revisiting it. Cool. All right. Well, my number three then uh, once again won't be much of a surprise to most people. It is Pinocchio. I was waiting for that. The, yeah, the list, Disney yeah. classic. Not one of my favorite favorite Disney films. Um, you know, maybe if I had seen more films from 1940, it might have shown up a little higher or lower on my list. However you want to say it. But um, yeah, yeah. I do like Pinocchio. I think it's an interesting film. It certainly goes to some really dark places, which is kind of, you know, a little yeah, prototypical does, yeah. for the time for Disney. Yeah, I'd say it's it's never been one of my favorite Disney films or the story, but yeah, it, it does deal with some dark things. Yeah, I, I think there's just, it's more that there's just, you know, parts of it. I think the animation is brilliant. But there's parts of it I like. The whole whale sequence is always one of my favorites, you know. Yeah, I was going to say that as well. I love that bit. Yeah. That's, that, that's, I always, if it's, if it's on TV or something, I could ignore the rest of it, but when it gets to the whale bit, I love watching it. Right, that. exactly. And I always liked Jiminy Cricket as a character, you know. So, mm. so you know, it's it's on my list. It's like I said, it's not one of my all time favorites, but it, you know, it, as we know, if it's a Disney film, chances are good it'll it'll end up on my list. Yeah, so I knew I knew it'd be there. I was just wasn't sure where. Right, right. Okay. So my number two is His Girl Friday. Very good. Uh, screwball comedy directed by Howard Hawks, adapted from the play The Front Page. It stars Cary Grant and Russell and Russell. And it was also, this is the second time they've been adapted for the screen. The first one was in 1931, where it was called The Front Page. But for this, this one changed it and had the uh, the character of Hilde Johnson become a woman and became his girl Friday. But it's, I just love this, you know, it's the editor and his ex-wife and star reporter. You know, this, it's just the banter they have. They, you know, they love each other, but they've, they argue all the time. That's why they're no longer together. But a new, a new story coming out 
and you know it's just it's just the constant banter it's like it's so fast it's just pepping back it's like gunshot fire it's just but it's just brilliantly done it's it's just dazzling to watch i mean the uh the coen brothers sort of were riffing on it a bit with the hudsucker proxy and jennifer jason's lee character but it's uh his girl Friday though is just a true classic. It's a brilliant film. Yes, yes, definitely. I agree wholeheartedly. And a little trivia about the film actually that uh, in the beginning when Rosalind Russell is going, you know, heading for her train to leave forever, she is heading to where? Albany, New York. That would be my <gasps> neck of the woods. Thank you very much. Oh wow! So I always enjoy seeing Excellent. that. Yeah, I don't know why you'd want to go to Albany, New York if you're somewhere else, but hey, you know. <laughs> anyway, so well, my number two is Foreign Correspondent, uh, one of Alfred Hitchcock's first American films. It stars Joel McRae and Lorraine Day, uh, and he plays a newspaper reporter who gets sent over to Europe to cover the war and, of course, gets mixed up in some spy-type hijinks uh, and a big story that's that's bigger than he is. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a great Hitchcock film. You can definitely see, you know, a lot of Hitchcock's sort of hallmarks in there, but it, you can also tell it's a slightly earlier in his career. Um, but I always liked Joel McRae. It's a it's a fun story. Yeah. It's got that that mix of you know suspense and thrills, but also some humor. Um, and uh, it's you know it's not one of his more famous films, but it's definitely one that's that's worth checking out. Yeah, I've not seen that one, but again, it's it's one I was reading about, and it did, uh, did it piqued my interest. So yeah, yeah, it's definitely worth I watching. I enjoy watch. it quite a bit. I just just saw then though, just uh, just going back to His Girl Friday because I mentioned how they were talking over each other. Yes, it's uh, the the multi, they didn't they didn't have multi track sound recording then, so Hawks had the sound mix on the set, turn the various overhead microphones on and off as required for the scene. Oh my gosh, my god, must have been a nightmare. Yeah, as many as thirty five times and some of them. Wow, Jesus, that's crazy. That's dedication. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. Sorry. Uh, I just thought that was an interesting Yeah, one. for sure. Okay, but my number one is The Thief of Baghdad. Ah, okay. Interesting. It stars Sabu, Conrad Veidt again, John Justin and June Dupre. It's it's one of my, it's a film from my childhood really because my dad loves the film as well. And we used to, whenever it was on, I remember times being at uh, like a caravan on a, on a cold, wet bank holiday Monday here in the UK and it's miserable. You couldn't go outside, but then this would come on. It's like all the technical, you've got magic, you got... You got a, a prince who's turned into a dog, and you got Sabu doing, you know, finds a magic carpet. You got genies. You got you got everything. You got a big mechanical flying horse. You got the evil Grand Vizier Jafar, played by Conrad Veidt, and it's just oh, it's magical. And I just have so many lovely memories of the film. And uh, I watched it again. I think either last year or a couple of years ago with my daughter, and she loved it as well. Although there were times when she's going, "That effect's rubbish," <laughs> but, uh, but she still loved the film, the story, and everything. And it's uh, it was it's superb, lovely film. Oh, good. Well, I, I I am familiar with it, but I have not seen it, so I I did not know you held it in such high esteem, though. And I will I will definitely check it out. Yeah, it's a it's a great film. It's a good family one to watch. Well, I have to say, what what kind of name is Jafar for a grand vizier? I mean, like I know <laughs> who would who would use that name in a film? As it's if that would ever get used again. Yeah. Right. I mean, I'm, I'm glad that's a name that, that disappeared yeah. and never got reused in another movie. And the film, though, on a technical level, it was also one of the first major uses of a blue screen or green screen nowadays but it was blue screen back in right. the day right oh that's cool very that's cool it. All right. Well, my number one has appeared on your list already, and it was your number two. It, it is His Girl Friday. I had a feeling it might. Yeah, I mean, it's it's like you said, it's a classic. Uh, you know, it's it, Howard Hawks directing, but with you know Cary Grant and Rosalind Russell together are just fantastic. And like you said, that that rapid fire dialogue, it's it's almost too much to take sometimes because it's so yeah, fast. It's definitely, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, it, it's definitely it's one of those movies that kind of it hits you. You know what I mean? But it is a lot of fun. I love the way it's it's framed. How much so much of it just takes place in like this. New newspaper room and, and people are coming in and out and hiding and, and you know all sorts of things it's just it's a, it's a really fun film no it's I just I like the way that it just all flows so well it just goes from one scene to the other it just all makes total sense because some films 
you get sort of you start you know you, you get pulled out of it but this one you just you put it on and you just pulled along by the current of the dialogue and you just it's just the acting matters right yeah i think it's just come out on uh criterion yes here. yes it's same here so. and it also includes not only his girl friday but also the 1931 version the front page is included as a bonus feature so definitely worth your money if you uh yeah i need interested. to i need to get that ordered yeah i need to get that All right, great. Well, that is 1940 then, and uh, that's going to start to wrap up our episode. Hopefully you have enjoyed it. Phil, why don't you go ahead and tell people what we have in store for them next week? Next week, the episode is uh, going to be a Valentine-themed one. We're going to be doing After the Endings for When Harry Met Sally. A very romantic film. Yeah, I love that film. And also, which might surprise some people, we're going to be doing The Return of the Jedi, a little-known sci-fi film. Yeah, also one of the great (laughs) romantic films of our time, everyone knows, I think, right? (laughs) <laughs> very much so i mean it's it's, good. it's nice as well because we just had the announcement for episode eight which is going to be the last jedi so yes very exciting so well people may be wondering how does return of the jedi tie in as a valentine's day movie and also how can we do an after the ending for return of the jedi when we know what happens because there's the force awakens but we wanted to have a little fun with this so we decided that what we're going to do is we're going to do our after the ending for return of the jedi where it's going to focus mostly on the romance and or love of han and leia so that's where oh, the I Luke and Leia? Oh, no. <laughs> Ooh, I, I mean, you could go that way if you wanted. But I, <laughs> no, I'm not. I, mean, I hope you don't. Um, no, I'm not going But, uh, you know, we're going to focus on, on their relationship, so that's going to kind of be the, the, the focus of it. And, and so I think we sort of set as like a rule for ourselves that it has to end up – in some way, it may not end up where The Force Awakens starts, but it can't contradict The Force Awakens. Yeah. So we're going to yeah. kind of give ourselves a, a semi-imposed rule here that it's going to kind of be tracing the journey of Han and Leia. Um, and both our endings should end in a way that then could feasibly lead into the events of The Force Awakens. Yeah, it's, it's going to be canon up to The Force Awakens. <laughs> That's right. Exactly. <laughs> um, but we thought it would be fun. You know, we don't, we, 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 as you know, we're both big Star Wars fans. We want to do something kind of different for Valentine's Day than just a couple of, quote, chick flicks. So we, we kind of got this idea idea and thought hey yeah this could be this could be a good time and it does have kind of a romance component to it so we'll both be uh wearing pink and having chocolates shaped like hearts and we'll be talking about uh when harry met sally and star wars what more could you ask for yes um, i'm not going to be doing a sound effect from what uh when harry met sally though <laughs> probably a good idea <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh, and we will also be doing our top 10 films of 1988 so there should be some Good ones. What the feeling it's going to be a hard list to do. There's going to be probably lots of films we want to put in it. Yeah, eighties eighties are always to. tough, you know, because there's just yeah. it's kind of our time, I guess. But yeah, and we'll also have a mighty morphing mini feature, which, as usual, is yet to be decided. That's right. So lots to look forward to in our next episode. Uh, this will be our first after the ending for a Star Wars film, so that should be fun. So please join us then. Well, thank you for listening to episode 40. We're onwards and upwards. You can listen to all our previous episodes on the various podcast platforms. It's well worth dipping back in because we've covered an awful lot of films. Yes, we have. Yeah. 80 films then. 80 films now, yeah. 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 Wow. I know. Yeah, we're just, we're just throwing out all these, you know, film sequels and Hollywood We'll be coming knocking any moment. That's right. So, so listen now before we're uh, you know whisked off to Hollywood, and uh, you know we're too big and famous to to keep going on with this. So, oh yeah, yeah, <laughs> a lot of danger of that <laughs> happening. <laughs> hey, you never can tell. That's right. No, even when we do, you know, become Hollywood bigwigs, we're still going to do the podcast. That's right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So it's our first. It's our first labor of love. So don't, no worries there. Yeah. All right, then. Well, that's going to wrap us up for this episode. As always, we thank you for listening. I'm Mike Spring. And I'm Phil Edwards. And we'll see you next week. After the ending. Uh, so D'Amato and Beeman relocate to New Mexico to head up to New Me- the- blah, blah, blah. Well, that didn't take long.
<laughs> All right. Well, my number 10 uh, is a movie called Dispatch from Reuters starring Edward G. Robinson. And it stars – I just said that. I literally just said it stars Edward G. Robinson. So, <laughs> Okay. One more time. <laughs> he does the – it's – Think what I was right. Wow. Was I was, <laughs> I was like, are you, yeah. What are you saying right now? <laughs> yeah. Ba, ba, da, ba. Right. Oh, is that uh, you trying no, to do Charlie Chaplin, or is that you just, just? I could just trying to think. Oh. Just, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, my what number. Sorry. What? What do you got? <laughs> is that your Alpacino again? Alpacino. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Good. Because that work. that fits perfectly in, though. I mean, that's you know, what else? Where else would you throw in a Pacino, you know, impression then between our number five and four on our top ten films of nineteen forty? It works for me. <laughs>